everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. In this podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Mark Menelasino. Mark is an internal medicine doc who has a practice, a thriving, wonderful, integrative, functional medicine practice in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And he has a mission. His mission is to help women to understand their hearts better and looking at cardiovascular disease risk. He's coming out with a new book called The Women's Heart Solution. comes out on October 16, 2018. And it really gets into root cause medicine, you know, functional medicine approaches to heart health. And what I really like about this interview is that we touch on a lot of different things here. We're going to touch on behavioral modification on uh, goodness we we both are from the midwest so we call it pop you know soft drinks <laughs> and all the different foods and what we need to watch for there we are talking about toxicity mark and i also know each other because um, we are connected to a company called genexa health and genexa health has wonderful non-contaminant over-the-counter options for people. So he's the chief medical officer for Genexa and I'm on the medical advisory board. So we talk a little bit about toxicity, which is good information for people. So here we go. Have some fun uh, listening in. I, I think we go in a lot of different places in this interview, which is good because everything is all interrelated anyway, right? Here we go. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast where I interview uh, many exciting leaders in the field. And I usually try to find people that I feel like, you know, maybe they're not out there in the open, but I really want to bring them out into the limelight. And the guest that I have for this show is one of those people where I feel like he's been working hard in his clinic, doing incredible work, and is now coming out with a book. And I really want to shine the light on everything that he's been doing. So, Dr. Mark Menelasino, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dana. Love to be here. So great to have you. And, um, you know, I just have such great respect for you and, you know, all of the work that you've been doing with the Institute for Functional Medicine. You know, it's just um, phenomenal. I've learned a lot from you. And what I most appreciate is the fact that you're such a heart-centered guy. So, I appreciate that. Well, one of the first questions that I like to ask guests is what their favorite color is. And I might be doing some diagnosing from this. So <laughs> just letting you know. <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting because I um, started with one then switched. I, when I grew up, I had a purple people eater Schwinn bicycle with a little stick shift in it. And it was purple. And that was my favorite thing I had as a kid. And um, I'm not a very materialistic guy, but that was the, one of my favorite things. And purple's always stuck with me. Once I moved to Jackson Hole, being out in nature, like right now, it's it's the greenest it gets all year. And we go from this crazy Arctic type of 60 feet of snow to transform to this beautiful green, lush ecosystem. And so green is my is 
my true favorite color. Uh, you know, that totally syncs up. Um, in the seven systems of health that I talk about, green correlates to the cardiovascular system. <laughs> Right. So there you go. And you are really steeped in heart health in, in a number of different ways. So, wow, that makes so much sense. So, Mark, what got you into working as, um, well, you know, kind of your, your life's calling and being a physician and now going deeper into heart health um, as you have with a book that you've just written? You know, tell us a little bit more about you, your personal journey, where you've been, how you got into this, because I think it's an intriguing story. Well, thank you, Deanna. And I, I'm always, uh, I, I'm, I really appreciate you asking that question because I ask the same of all of my colleagues. And all of us in functional medicine have a story. There's a reason we were called to do root cause medicine and to go beyond just what we were taught. And I'm the fourth doctor in my family. We're a Brady Bunch, and I'm Bobby. And um, <laughs> I did not want to be a doctor. I wanted to be an astronaut because I saw Neil Armstrong walk on the moon when I was seven. Uh, and I, as I got older in high school, Dean Ornish showed up in Omaha, Nebraska and did the reversing heart disease trials. And I learned that when people have heart disease, known blockages in their heart, instead of getting their chest cracked open and plumbing taken out of their leg to replumb the heart, they could do lifestyle medicine and it actually came out better than doing the surgery. Dr. Ornish taught people how to eat, how to exercise, how to deal with stress, how to have love and support. And those people with blocked arteries did better than the people who had the heart bypass surgery. So that led me on a lifetime of trying to change medicine and really focus on the heart. As I was doing my training, I had so many women that had very vague, difficult to find symptoms that ended up being heart disease and they got missed. I saw many heart attacks, I saw many women die when it was thought to be their gallbladder or thought to be anxiety or stress. And women just don't present the same as men. They don't respond to the medications the same. And you have to test them a little bit differently. So uh, men and women are different. And the way they're most different is in how they present in heart disease. And that's really what my passion has become is to really be sure that we don't miss heart disease in women anymore. Yeah, Oh, very well said. I think that that is so important and really giving them the passion to focus on heart disease, because I, I think it's been overlooked and there have been different initiatives to get them in that direction, but they haven't quite formed an emotional connection to heart disease for some reason. Like, I don't see many women that talk with me about how they're really concerned about having hypertension or having a heart attack one day. You know, they tend to talk with me about breast cancer or skin cancer or their body weight. So how do you even start to have a conversation with your patients about heart disease, especially when you don't feel like they're too particularly concerned? Well, you know, they taught me in med medical school to motivate you by fear and guilt. If you don't stop smoking, you're going to get lung cancer. If you don't exercise, you're going to get heart disease. Well, most of our clients don't really respond to fear and guilt. They respond to being given information that empowers them with knowledge to help them make behavioral changes that are good based on their belief system. And it's really meeting people where they're at. But the data doesn't lie. There are more women dying of heart disease than the top five cancers combined. We just don't think women die of heart disease. The scary number is that two of the three of your friends will have heart disease, and the first warning in half of them is sudden death. You don't get a second chance in women. So when they have heart disease and they have a heart attack, 
they're more likely to die than men are. Yeah. They're more likely to get misdiagnosed. And the treatments that we've developed for heart disease are really male-based, as is most of medicine. We do most clinical trials on men, not women. But it's, it's just been missed. And Deanna, if you and I go out to dinner and we both get chest pain and go to the emergency room, I'll get admitted and evaluated for heart disease. You'll get sent home with heartburn medicine. Mm-hmm. It, it is amazingly disparate about how it's perceived, how it appears, how it presents, and how it's treated. Yeah, no, that's so true. You know, I, I had Dr. Mark Houston on a couple episodes ago talking about nutrition and, and heart disease. And, and he and I, together with Stephen Sinatra, Mimi Guineri, Joel Kahn, just published a review article in the Journal of the American College of Nutrition about cardiovascular disease. And it is pretty staggering, you know. Um, what you're saying about women is is so true. I've seen the same data that you're talking about. And the thing is, when we did that review article, what really struck me is that heart disease is so darn preventable. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you know, just it, if we look at if we're smoking, are we active? Are we active or not? Are we eating certain things or not? You know, what are we eating? What are our emotions like? So how do you start to dive into that conversation with women or men and really show them that they have the locus of control? Well, I I think the key is to find what's important to our clients. And for some, it's their brain health or not getting Alzheimer's. Others, it's not having a heart attack like their mom or dad did. Um, for others, it's not getting breast cancer. And for me, they're all the same thing. They're all manifestations of an inflammatory state of the body. Diabetes, obesity, heart disease, uh, dementia, um, arthritis, autoimmune disease. It's all fire out of control. And so I like to meet people where they're at and get a, a success based on what their desires are. But I know in our root cause functional medicine model that when I'm preventing heart disease, I'm preventing dementia. When I reverse diabetes, I'm preventing a heart attack. All of it's so tied together that the key is really finding where each person is and help them to find what they're, they call it the hot button. What's important to that person? And um, it's interesting because in medical school, two things that really shocked me. One was the chancellor told me that half of what I learned in the next four years will be proven wrong my job is to figure out which half. Mm. The other thing was that we treat people on the bell-shaped curve of medicine. We, re- we regress everybody as an individual to the amoeba population. So the idea is to get them to 50, and then it's a slow decline in their vitality to the nursing home. And that's not how you and I practice. We want to get people to their best this year and then work as a team each year to keep them on that square curve, to keep them in that optimal vitality state. Because if they feel that way and they're making those health choices, inflammation can't be there. Depression can't sneak in. Heart disease can't sneak in. Dementia, diabetes, obesity. So uh, it's, to me, it's all the same root cause medicine. It's all the same matrix, the same um, treating the same parts of the underlying causes. But it's really what's each person's personal story? What are they most interested in being the best at, not most afraid of getting? That, so I get everything you're saying. This is brilliant because it really does speak to motivational interviewing, being where they're at, looking at their stage of change. Let me give you an example of a client, and I want you to tell me how you would approach this person. And I'll just give a disclaimer. This person is my dad. You and I just had a conversation about my dad not too long ago. Yes. But, but here's the story. So if you say, let, I meet people where they're at. 
So my dad is, is kind of an interesting guy because he, um, he has had in his mind that he's probably going to die somewhere between the two ages of when his parents died. So, you know, he just turned 70 and he kind of has this limiting belief that, you know what, I'm going to die of something. So I might as well splurge. I'm going to make lots of cakes, you know, uh, back to my, my mom's bread baking days. I'm going to go back into bread baking. I'm going to eat this food. Yeah. I'm on blood pressure lowering medication. Yeah. I have arrhythmia. Yeah. I'm on a blood clotting agent. Um, an anti-blood clotting agent. Um, and so he's got a lot of heart issues and I don't think he wants to change. So I'm kind of curious. He walks into your office and he's really diligent when he goes to his doc. You know, he goes there to get the meds and to do his thing. But, you know, he kind of just, uh, he doesn't think he's going to live very long. And he, he thinks, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy life. In fact, I had him on the phone today and he says, D, I'm just going to enjoy life. I never thought I'd even make it to 70 and here I am. So I'm kind of curious. This is a, what would you say to him? I mean, how do I rattle this guy? <laughs> <laughs> I, you've got a tough one on your hands. Um, you know, one of the questions I've used, and, and I, I love how you work with clients, and it's the same uh, type of energy I bring, is that we set an intention for our visit. And that's part of walking the walk and talking the talk, is we live this way. We are passionate about it. But for him, uh, one of the questions that sometimes you've got to stir the pot a little bit. And what I would ask him is, if you were gone tomorrow, what would you miss the most? Mm. You know, to help me get some insight into what's important to him. And I think sometimes as doctors, we we try to overwhelm people with numbers and statistics and, and all of this kind of fear as guilt model. But um, I'd try to connect with him and, and he'd probably miss you. Uh, what, what are the things that he would miss the most not being here and 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 why and what what would be different if he were to have more time to do that whether it's to climb the Grand Teton whether it's to be with his daughter see his grandchild you know I for me I have no desire to live to 110 right but I want to ski with my grandkids at 85 I don't want to be watching them play soccer from a wheelchair mm-hmm. and so I I, I think Everybody has that. They call it the hot button in sales. And salesmen are taught to find what's each person's hot button. We all have different reasons for why we want that new car, why we want a different stove in our kitchen, why we want the house painted a different color. There, there are these, we're all so unique and individual. And that's what I love about what we do mm-hmm. is we are so different. I love the variability in all of us. So that would be one thing that I'd be very personally interested in is, what would he miss? And maybe that would give me some access. And then I would ask him, what's one thing we could do together? And one of my tricks, Deanna, is uh, especially if people, you know, if someone comes in and they're, they're dairy-free, gluten-free, they're eating all organic, and they're doing everything right nutritionally, then I don't go there. But if someone says, well, you know, I, I just kind of eat what I want, things don't matter. And I'll say, you know what, could you have a milkshake for breakfast? And they start laughing. I <laughs> said, so, no, could you have like an ice cream tasting type of milkshake? And like, well, you know, I said, could you do that for me? For the next two weeks, could you just make a milkshake for breakfast? And they'll say, well, I guess I could. I said, you know what, let's go make one. So I go to our kitchen in our clinic and I pull out my Nutribullet and put a little coconut milk in, a couple pieces of ice, this incredible chocolate tasting uh, pea-based protein that's incredibly clean. And uh, sometimes I'll put a banana in it, sometimes a little almond butter. 
depending on what they like. And we make it together and we share it. And he says, oh my God, this is amazing. Yes, I could do this for the next two weeks for breakfast. And then I got it. Because if he can make that change, he'll feel better. He'll, his joints will be better. He'll sleep a little bit better. It's not a medication. It's not going to change his life. But he'll have this sense of accomplishment that he did one thing and he was successful. And he'll feel a little better from it. Mark. And again... That is so great. It. That is so great. And you know what? It's the word that you used, milkshake. Like when you first said that, I was imagining like, oh my gosh, is he serious? And what is he going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, coconut milk. It's a milkshake. And um, like you said, the, what is the one thing? What's the one thing that can just kind of carry us and give us that little bit of lift and reduce that toxic burden of our lives or whatever we're taking in? And what you said about the hot button is great. I also have a very similar technique. I call it the five whys. So, mm. you know, asking that first question, if you were gone tomorrow, what would you miss the most? And then let's just imagine they say, well, my wife. Well, why? What is it about your wife? Well, you know, she's so caring. Well, why do you think she cares for you so much? Well, because, you know, and then you keep going and then finally you get at like, wow, there's the soul. There's the heart of that person's existence. And most people don't even know you know, why they're here, what they're doing, what, what are they, you know, what, what's the juice, the joie de vie. So I, great strategies. And I really put you on the spot there with this kind of, uh, you know, just this case out of, out of nowhere. And it's just been on my mind just because I had a conversation with my dad today. You know, the other thing, Mark, that we, that you and I share in common is that we are really committed to helping to reduce toxicity on this planet in a number of different ways and you know even with patients looking at their toxic burdens whether it's toxic people toxic emotions or just outright environmental toxins talk with me about environmental toxicity and heart disease because I, I know that there's a correlation if we look at lead and blood pressure we're looking at arsenic and you know changes in cardiovascular disease risk so wax on toxicity for us like is it truly an issue or is this just something that's been magnified for no good reason? Well, I think it's probably all a myth, is my personal opinion, Deanna. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but, uh, first of all, I'm incredibly impressed by the paper you guys are putting out. And uh, Mimi Guarneri, Mark Houston, Joel Kahn, yourself, these are the people who I've learned from and looked to. And, and they're just rock stars in heart health and are so passionate. And Mark Houston, I heard lecture 15 years ago on heart health and toxicity, on lead levels and heart disease, arsenic, mercury levels, and blood pressure. The data is very, very clear that the root cause of much of our chronic illness in America, heart disease, diabetes, is toxicity-driven. And I don't think a lot of us want to admit it. It's kind of like the EMF from cell phones that we're not really sure if it's a problem or not. Well, that was 20 years ago in toxicity. We weren't really sure if... If the toxic environment we live in, you know, you need to have clean air, clean water, clean food. And that's going to be probably if you were to do one thing in your world is to focus on that. Um, do we have a double-blind, placebo-controlled, international, multi-center clinical trial that says organic coconut milk is better than non-organic coconut milk? No. But do we intuitively know that it's probably better for us? Yes. And, and what I see in the chronic illness model is as we clean up toxicity – in the environment, in the relationships, in uh, their nutrition, 
their numbers move. Not only do they feel better, but their their blood sugar markers move, their inflammatory cardiovascular markers move. And and if you're doing just a cholesterol test in the old-fashioned way, you won't see this. It's when you're looking at the fractionated cholesterol, the um, inflammatory markers, that you have to look at a deeper level to see what the risk is individually, and you'll see this risk evolve and go away over time as these lifestyle changes are brought in. It's incredibly powerful medicine. And I'm an internal medicine specialist. I'm taught to use medications, and I do use medications when needed. But I think, as Dean Ornish taught me, lifestyle medicine trumps pharmaceutical medication almost every time. Uh, There was a great trial looking at type 2 diabetes it was done through a YMCA where they compared the leading drug, uh, glucophage or metformin, to lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And lifestyle markedly beat out the medication for optimizing markers for diabetes. So it's, it's not just my opinion. It's not just the way I practice. The data supports it. And, and I really think this root cause medicine toxicity in our environment, in our food, in our medications, in our supplements – uh, really has a big piece of what's driving this whole chronic illness burden. Like, what are some of the, you mentioned food, air, and water, which are the three biggies that I usually mention with clients too. But in terms of ingredients, like let's just say that we're in the grocery store, we, we're going down the aisles, what would be like the top five different ingredients that we need to be on the lookout for? Like, do you have a hierarchy, just these top five ingredients that should be on our radar? I mean, would it be something as simple as sugar or should we be looking at artificial sweeteners? Should we be looking at dyes, you know, the different FD and C dyes that are in products? You know, like what are your five scary ingredients that we tend to find in a lot of products out there, whether they're food products, OTCs, over-the-counters, even pharmaceuticals, you know, it's so odd, but you know, all the, the colors and the dyes that are used. So, Tell me your top five. Well, I probably have 50. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know you do. You probably have hundreds, but... (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll tell you a a fun story I share actually with my clients is that when I first moved to Jackson Hole 22 years ago, um, I used to do intensive care medicine. And my first day there, I walked in and the intensive care unit, the ICU nurses looked at me and said, are you that crazy nutrition doctor that just moved here? Oh, really? I said, yes, but I'm running the ICU. And they said, let us show you something. They held out a bedpan and rattled three vitamin tablets in it. Mm. And they said, people bring these vitamins in because their doctor recommends them. They consider them medicines, and they take them, and they go right through the body. We call them bedpan bullets. Uh. And I said, well, how could that be? Then I went and got a bottle, and I encourage everybody listening, whatever you have in your medicine cabinet, turn it over. Look at what's in it, the active ingredient. Then look at the inactive ingredients. This common multivitamin had 46 inactive ingredients holding it together. What? Oh, my word. And and I guarantee you many of the people listening are taking this because it's the number one vitamin in the country. And it's it's that bill of goods we were sold that um, it's the nutrients. But once you look at these these inactive ingredients or the so-called other ingredients, what a lot of people are taking is shocking. And it may be in a small amount, but if you're taking it every day, combined with the toxicity in our air, water, and food. It's a it's a toxic load is the term I think about. Well, you're just adding to toxic load. But, you know, you wouldn't think that you're getting toxins in a multivitamin. You know, you think that that's like a health-promoting product. I mean, come on, if you buy a bag of chips or something else, you kind of anticipate that there probably are not such good things in that product. But when you're buying a multivitamin that people go out of the way to buy for their health and being preventative, 
you don't expect to find 46 inactive ingredients. I would hope not, and I think that's the message that we're spreading. It's kind of like uh, factory farm-raised meat. Uh, the, the latest thing I saw was that one serving of beef is equal to taking one antibiotic pill mm. because 70% of the antibiotics in, in America go to livestock, not to people. So there's, there's a lot going on in, in the industries in pharma and in uh, farm that is done for financial gain, not for the population benefit. An example of these inactives are, I mean, things, number one, I tell my clients, if you can't pronounce it, you probably shouldn't eat it. Right. Things like crispovidine, FTC, yellow aluminum lake, number five. Mm -hmm. Aluminum lake, what is that? Well, it's a heavy metal paint to make the pill look better and taste, to taste smoother as it goes down. Mm -hmm. There's talc in some products, which is banned in Europe. You know what I read yesterday, Deanna, is that there are 1,500 food ingredients banned in Europe there's 11 in the U.S. Oh my goodness. It can't be that bad, can it? So things like phthalates, parabens, talc, mm. uh, these aluminum lake dyes, and then a lot of people are trying to be gluten free. Well, a lot of medications have gluten in them. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty amazing that um, you don't know it because you're looking at the active ingredient, not the inactive ingredients. And uh, I, I do think that this is something that it's a toxic load, and if you're trying to battle something like extra weight gain or extra high blood sugar or inflammatory other diseases or the risk of heart disease, anything you can do to reduce that toxic load, you should. So look at what you put in your body, and the first thing you do is go to your medicine cabinet and look at these inactive ingredients. And if there's more than a couple things um, or something you can't pronounce, it's not something you should put in your body, give to your spouse, or particularly give to these vulnerable creatures called our children. Mm. So it's it's kind of the the red pain relievers, the blue pain relievers, the the talc and the um, anti-nausea meds. It's it's pretty shocking what we're doing, and and we just don't know. And that's. Mm. That's and you don't know what you don't know, right? And, and yes. that's why we have these conversations. You know, a lot of the things that you mentioned, I was taking some notes here, and you mentioned about extra weight gain and the idea that many of these toxins act as endocrine disruptors, which means that basically they jam up our metabolic cycles and they make us not burn fuel efficiently. You know, they change up the Krebs cycle. They change up oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria. You know, they just jam things up. Like in a car, you've got sticky oil and things aren't moving right. And, you know, a lot of these toxins are fat loving. And so not only do they create additional adipose tissue, more fat in our bodies potentially, but they can also just sink into that the, the fatty compartments of the body. And one of the most fat-containing compartments of the body is the brain, right? And yes. so then we get all kinds of issues like brain fog and we can't concentrate. And, you know, when I talk with people and I've talked with other clinicians too, one of the primary reasons why people go in, uh, aside from not having energy or fatigue, which can also be connected to toxicity, is not having mental sharpness. And a lot of people are afraid of dementia. So I don't know if you want to talk about brain health at all as it relates to sure. the heart or even toxicity, but I do think that this is a huge concern for people. Well, I think of essentially dementia as a reversible disease, just like I see cardiovascular or heart disease as a reversible disease. But the model I was taught to look at the basic cholesterol pattern or the basic dementia workup 
and use the single medication monotherapy pill for the ill model is obsolete. It doesn't work. You've got to look at the microbiome, genetic risk factors, epigenetic changes, toxicity, nutritional deficiencies, hormone balance, relationships, adverse childhood events, trauma. You've got to look at all of these aspects to see why this disease is manifesting in that unique individual. Because again, we're, we're kind of lumping everybody into the masses. I had someone come in yesterday that um, he went online and based on his age, his blood pressure, his cholesterol, his blood sugar, calculated a 10-year heart attack risk at 12%. Mm. And I said, well, you know, that's interesting because you climb every day, you ski every day, you're one of the most fit 62-year-old men I've ever met, mm. and you're 5'11", you weigh 165 pounds. I said, what if the same numbers you presented were in a person who ate fast food, never got off the couch, drank soda pop all day, particularly the diet pop, and we should talk about that, and weighed 300 pounds. How could you guys have the same risk factor based on a calculation of these numbers? And that's where this, this idea of evidence-based medicine fails us. As an internal medicine doctor, I wanted to know the evidence. What should we do? How should we treat people? But then I look at the N of one. I look at each individual person sitting in front of me to assess their individual risk, their individual modifiable changes. What's their story? What are their hot buttons? And what do we need to do to not let these diseases manifest? And I, I think really they're all the same thing. Well, yeah, there, there are a number of different things to pick and choose from, right? You know, I, I can tell that you're from the Midwest because you said diet pop. <laughs> it's soda let's, pop is what we call it. Let's talk about pop. You know, um, do you find, I mean, I'm getting a lot of people who are very health conscious now. So it's almost like, you know, they're almost to the other end of the spectrum where eating healthy has become like orthorexia, like a pathology. They've become too fixated. But do you see a lot of people that are still drinking a lot of soft drinks? Well, you know, I, I, I see people who are addicted to diet soda um, and what the latest data says, the, the scientific data, is as you mentioned, these hormone disruptors. The artificial sweetener in diet soda actually makes you fat. It's a hormone disruptor that affects the thyroid and your other hormone balance that actually increases your body's desire to put on internal or visceral and other areas of body fat. So um, it's, it's shocking how people think they might be helping themselves by doing a diet soda pop but they're actually causing hormone disruption and adding weight gain. So diet soda actually causes weight gain. The other one that we're talking about is bread. And I'm not anti-gluten, and I don't think everybody should be off gluten. But for people where gluten's an issue, it's been a game changer in my practice by getting people off gluten. And the first thing I tell them is that, did they know that a slice of bread has the same sugar load on your body as a can of Coca-Cola? Oh, what a good metaphor. And then look back in the last week, how many bread products did you have? How many bagels? How many English muffins? How many slices of bread? How many times you got to dinner and have bread as a side dish? And they'll go, well, uh, I've, I had 15 servings in the last week. Ah. And I'll say, do you think that your blood sugar would be better or that it would be easier to lose weight or that you would feel better, have more energy, sleep better if you didn't have 15 cans of pop last week? And so that's, it's those little pearls that you and I share with each other that mm. – that where we have, again, help make it easy. You know what? Let's do a milkshake and just don't eat bread until I see you in two weeks. Could you do that? Sure. And 90% of people who see me feel better within two weeks, and they lose a few pounds, their belt's a little tighter, 
uh, their dress fits a little better. It's, it's, it's doing the easy, low-hanging fruit, and then we can do the heavy lifting together. You know, one of the things that you just mentioned that I thought was great is this idea of bread being looked at as sugar, essentially that it is equivalent to a can of cola. You look at Cheerios or certain ready-to-eat breakfast cereals having a, a higher sugar impact. Corn chips, many people don't even think that corn chips are like sugar, but, yes. you know, it, it's all sugar. It's just in different forms. Potato chips, corn chips, all of these snacky kind of foods. And so... I want to talk about sugar and also from a personal perspective, what I started to do after I got back from the AIC, the annual conference for our IFM is, so I've already been pretty, pretty good with how I eat. I mean, I eat a lot of colors and um, if I have any kind of added sugar, it might be a little bit my, if I have chocolate, like the 70% cocoa bar or something like that, but I don't have a lot. But I, I recently, just after coming back, I went on a no added sugar diet. I don't even do fruit. I'm just doing an experiment on myself. And I cannot even tell you, Mark, how level I feel in terms of my mm. moods. I never slept poorly, but my sleep is even deeper. Um, it just feels like I'm not hungry all the time. And I don't think people know how bad they're, they're feeling until they go into feeling even better. And even for me, I was feeling good. I, I'm asymptomatic. I don't have anything that I'm really complaining about. It's just that I want, I was listening to Terry Walls and I was like, okay, I'm going to try to eat like this for a little bit. It's like amazing. I, I love it. it. It resonates for my body. And I think partly because I've totally taken out sugar. And I'm just curious about in your practice with people being hooked, you know, this whole idea of being hooked on something, you know, whether it's caffeine or sugar or you know, certain fatty food products, but what's your take on sugar specifically? How are you with sugar? Um, I, I, I've never been a big sugar person. Um, I, I do like good bread. I'm Italian, so of course I do. But what's interesting is I went to Italy last summer and I ate bread every day for three weeks and my stomach was flat and I felt great. I actually lost weight while I was there because we were swimming and being so active. I got back and I had one bagel the first day I was back and my daughter asked me why my stomach was bloated that night at dinner. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, you know, I think it may, it's the gluten that's here that's different than the breads. Um, and, and sugar comes in many different forms. Alcohol is one of the sugars that I think people don't really appreciate. And this isn't a true one-to-one -one relationship, but I used to have a, a wine glass picture on the wall in my office, like framed, full of sugar with a little yeast sprinkled on top. Mm. And so I would say, well, do you have a glass or two of wine at night? Well, you're having two glasses of sugar. And with the two pieces of bread you had for your sandwich at lunch, you just had four to six cans of soda pop. So it's, it's, um, it's the way people use it. And, and I think all of these addictions, they're, they're emotional issues. They're, you're, they're running for something. They're fixing something by this emotional eating that we've talked about in the past. Um, there are some things that cut down the carb crave. Uh, the adrenal health, the emotional health, all of that's usually tied to it. And, um, you know, I've seen things like gymnemia used and some of these other natural supplements. I'm not seeing great success with it. But what I find is salt is a great example. People who love salt, when they go off salt for two or three weeks, when they have it again, it doesn't taste as good. And when you go off sugar, when you break that sugar craving, when you go back and have it, like for me, drinking a can of soda pop is almost impossible. Right. It's too much sugar for me. Yeah. And um, 
it's interesting how how to do it. And it's almost it's a withdrawal. You have to you have to either go cold turkey, but it has to be done in a way that they're able to um, again fit their belief system. What's their reason for it, and what's one or two things they can do to be successful. And you probably don't want to try to go off sugar, like the um, client I saw the other day that's remodeling a house, hiring a new manager, having huge job stress, going on a vacation, their dog is sick. You know, that when you have all these other life stressors going on, the last thing you want to do is quit sugar, even though it might be your best thing you could do for yourself. Do it at a time when things are stable and it's a change you can make. And I call it the savings account. You know, we all get stressed, we all have these ups and downs. But when you're not feeling great is don't push yourself to the usual 120% all of our listeners do. Cut back. Do 90% and put 10% back in your savings account. Purposely hold back a little bit on your exercise routine, taking a little extra time for yourself, having the massage, going to the spa, uh, playing with your dog. Do something to give yourself some more of that savings account. But making these hard behavioral changes like quitting sugar, it may be the best thing that'll help you get through stressful times, but sometimes it's a little too much. Kind of like quitting smoking. We have a policy in our office that if you're not interested in quitting smoking, you can't come see us. So if you're a smoker, we will accept you, but you have to commit to be thinking about quitting, pick a date, let us help you with the strategy, because if you're smoking, all the other things that we're doing don't work. And the analogy I use, it's this hot button idea, young women will come in that are smoking and I'll say, you know, I have a friend in Beverly Hills that's a plastic surgeon Mm -hmm. and he won't do plastic surgery on your face if you're smoking. He won't take you as a patient because he knows his outcome won't be good. Uh. So I can tell this young woman about your heart disease risk, your lung cancer risk, breast cancer risk, all these risks and scare them, motivate them by fear and guilt. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. When I tell them your skin health of your face is directly related to your tobacco. You know, the, I'm not sure if you ever saw this, Deanna, the models. Um, I can't remember which one did it first, but her father passed away from lung cancer. So she did these pictures of these beautiful models, then had them photographically enhanced as if they were smokers 10 years later. Oh, wow. So it was amazing to see the skin change. And it's this epigenetic idea. The information your genes see will turn on the good ones and keep your face healthy and, and the collagen turnover great, or it'll turn them off. And you'll have wrinkly skin, not healthy looking skin. And, and again, for these young women, that might be their, their hot button. Or it might be cancer in their family. But what's that person's goal? And we don't quit smoking when you're in the middle of a job change or you're moving across town. You, you try to do it when it's an important date. It's tied to something they care about at a time where they have the bandwidth to make that behavioral change. You know what I like about your approach is that it seems like you have this continuum that you operate on. You know, you mentioned the fear and guilt, which, you know, you could instill a little bit of that or just give people like the realistic view, but then also showing them on the other side what could empower them and really finding how they can best receive the message and yet in the middle creating an intention. So I really like how you've uh, described your practice to me, it, it really feels very healing. And, and you really do give the patient the locus of control that they get to decide. But yet, if they're going to see you, these are the guidelines that you work within, and those are for their, their highest good. You know, you're really looking out for them. 
So I love this. So what, tell us more about, um, as we come to a close here, I want to know about this book that you've just written. You know, this is exciting. I haven't actually seen it. And so, uh, you know, I can't wait to get my hands on it. So give us a little sneak preview. Do you talk about this clinical approach that you've been describing to us? It seems like you're, you're really into behavior change as it relates to heart issues. Well, it's a lot like the, the, the consultations you provide, uh, Deanna, is you, you give the science with tools that actually work. And what I wanted was this message of heart disease is just not done right. Women are not getting a fair shake. We're not evaluating them right. And women are dying of heart disease that shouldn't. It's hard to prevent cancer. You can create an environment in the body where cancer doesn't want to be. It's an anti-inflammatory environment. But you can absolutely prevent cancer. I was taught that you look at four biomarkers or four parts of a lab test to assess your risk. My lab test for your individualized heart risk pattern is 27 biomarkers. Wow. I want to look at you individually in these inflammatory markers. So the book's called The Women's Heart Solution, and it's due out October 16th. The book is, is I'm very proud of it because what it really is, is it's a free visit with me. If you come see me, everything that's worked in my 25 years of healthcare experience, Actually, I have 35 years of healthcare experience, 25 as a doctor. Everything that's worked is in the book. All the tools I use, all the, the things that I've seen work, and it's a, it's a playbook to prevent heart disease in yourself and reverse it if you have it. And the beautiful thing about this functional medicine approach, looking at root cause risk, it also is probably going to prevent autoimmune disease, arthritis, diabetes, obesity, dementia, and cancer. You know, we know obesity is one of the highest risk factors for developing cancer. Mm -hmm. It's that inflammatory body fat. And if we prevent the things that drive heart attack in women, we're preventing the things that drive all of these other issues. So it's really a manifesto of self-care with all the tricks and tools and, and things that I, I use in my clinical practice provided for each individual to use. And I, I think it's, it's a time this message got out. We have to do better for women because we're completely missing the boat. Wow. You know, it, it feels so good to hear a physician, especially a male physician, championing uh, women's health as you are, Mark. I mean, this is really phenomenal. It, it sounds like what you've got in this book can apply to everybody, every single woman out there, no matter what their age is. Yes, it's centered around heart disease risk, but like you said, I mean, that's just really a portal into our entire being, whether it's our body weight and how our cells are growing and, and whether or not we have cancer risk. And so, you know, and bringing it all back to inflammation, it, it sounds incredible. So October 16th, 2018, isn't that sweetest day? <laughs> it is, actually. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how things happen because... The day I submitted the manuscript in February was Valentine's Day. Oh, my goodness. And I don't watch TV, but we watched a rerun of Grey's Anatomy. And the head surgeon, an African-American female, drove her husband to work, had chest pain, drove herself to the emergency room of another hospital, and told them she's having a heart attack. Please help her. And they dismissed her because she was having other symptoms. So the ER doctor asked her about her stress and anxiety and how hard her job was and her health relationship with her husband not about the things she would have asked a man. Uh. And she said, help me, I'm having a heart attack. Please get someone to help me. I want a second opinion. So they brought a psychiatrist. Mm. And then 10 minutes later, someone needed help. She jumped up to help them, wow. and she had a full-blown heart attack. Wow. 
ended up with the bypass surgery and almost died because no one listened to her. And I hope that what this book does is get people to, women to listen to themselves mm -hmm. and physicians to listen to women. Brilliant. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to get this book in my hands, to tell everybody about it and to help you promote it. Absolutely. Um, you know, I love when there, there's something good for people and I just want to get the word out. So to practitioners and, and patients, Mark, where can people find you? You know, talk about your website. Do you do anything on social media? How do people connect from here on out? Well, our website is menoclinic, M-E-N-O-Clinic.com, and it'll show you pictures of our beautiful environment here. We have a destination wellness program that focuses on prevention for women. But like yourself, Deanna, I feel like one of our missions is to provide good content that's free for people. And that's on our Facebook site or Instagram. But really our website is our portal for all of our information. There's quizzes on there. Ooh. The whole program we do is laid out and links to the book and sections for it. I really believe this is information that has to be shared with everyone. So on the website, you'll find what you need, menoclinic.com. Menoclinic, M-E-N-O clinic, C-L-I-N-I-C.com. And Mark, what you had mentioned to me before we signed on was that you actually write your content. I mean, the fact that, you know, you're a busy physician as it is, and, and yet you are so in tune with what people need that you're able to put all of this out. So kudos to you. Um, people who have you as their physician are incredibly fortunate. And I want thank to you. thank you for sharing your wisdom with me during this podcast and getting the word out. My pleasure, Deanna. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.